I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today I'm with Jess Blair, who is the Director in Wales of the Electoral Reform Society. Uh, Jess, first of all, uh, give me a bit of background about yourself. Okay, so um, I've been Director of ERS Cymru for about 10 months now, so quite new in the role still. Um, Previously, I worked for the Institute of Welsh Affairs, um, and I wrote policy for political party in the Assembly, and... I got interested in politics really through, well, accidentally, I did a history degree, um, wondered what joint honours degree I could do and ended up doing politics and fell in love with it. So that's me, really. That's because you're originally from Pembrokeshire, yeah. I think, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Bit. What are your priorities now in ERS Cymru, would you say? OK, so it's still quite new in the job, obviously. Um, but what I'm really trying to do with ERS Cymru is to make us um, much more of, well, much more of an organisation that, talks about issues that affect real people I think politics can often take place in a Cardiff Bay bubble and actually there's a huge challenge in terms of engagement and engaging people and tackling the democratic deficit that we've spoken so much about. Because you've um, produced a report on the issue of engagement Um, what is it do you think that perhaps turns off so many people from uh, let's focus on assembly politics Mm. rather than politics more generally although they're obviously linked. What is it that leaves us with a position where there are many people in Wales who just don't realise what the Assembly, mm. the Welsh Government, is responsible for. Yeah. And, um, and as we know, we've seen opinion poll findings, or poll findings, which show that a lot of people uh, believe, for example, that the NHS is run from Westminster still, yeah. although it hasn't been since... Uh, well, nearly 20 years ago. What's, what's this all about? Well, this is this is really my motivating factor in um, going for this job, to be honest with you. That that stat about, I think um, it was a BBC poll a few years ago, 48% of people thought Jeremy Hunt ran the Welsh NHS. And that really, that, that stat is really something that I've used a number of times over the last few years. And I think there are a multitude of reasons for that. I think we have a very different political landscape to Scotland. The way devolution's developed and our civil society has had to develop to catch up with that, it wasn't there before, has, um, I guess, created a more difficult road for Welsh politics and devolution, um, particularly from an assembly perspective. It's had to kind of, almost almost civil society's had to kind of catch up with where politics is, and that's really difficult, and it means that normal people aren't really that engaged. Um, I think the other big difference we have with Scotland is obviously news provision. Um, A lot of people, or most people in Wales, get their news from UK sources. And having Welsh news um, is probably quite rare. And there's no wonder people are quite confused when they see references um, on news outlets to the Welsh and English NHS, and there's no kind of separation between that. No wonder people are confused. And while perhaps... There have been attempts within the BBC to address this issue. Nevertheless, in terms of uh, network BBC um, broadcasting and uh, uh, news programmes, news outlets, news stories, you still do come across quite regularly references to 
um, uh, matters uh, which relate specifically to England, but which are nevertheless mm. included as if they were relating to Wales as well. Yeah, and I think a prime example of this, a couple of weeks ago, I think, um, the UK government announced their intention to uh, ban all plastic bag, well, charge for all plastic bag use in England only. And I saw a lot of my Welsh friends on Facebook saying, oh, this is great news. We've been doing this since, I think, 2011. And there's just this kind of mismatch between what's happening in Wales and what's being portrayed on the news. And no wonder, you know, my nan doesn't understand the difference. Mm. I mean, a few years ago, they had a report. They were so concerned about it that they commissioned a report Mm. uh, from somebody, I think it was based in Scotland, uh, who agreed that there was um, a problem with the BBC coming to terms with devolution. But it is the case that it's far more pronounced in terms of what relates to Wales than, than to Scotland because there were so many things in the past uh, which um, uh, related simply to England and Wales mm. and didn't include Scotland or Northern Ireland so they still have a long way to go don't they really? Yeah and I think the fact that we have um, a media provision that's Welsh specific that is probably suffering I think that's fair to say um, probably doesn't help that I know obviously Leighton Andrews looked into this um, I think the report came out last year and did a big kind of assessment of the problems and some recommendations on how to address this but I don't think there's a silver bullet I think it's a really difficult challenge that Wales has to face. Do you think that anything at all um, is to do with the lack of inspiring creative policy development? I think we in Wales have been trendsetters in terms of policy development. If we look at well, plastic bags, taxes, a prime example, but also organ donation, there are nations that are catching up with Welsh policy now. I think there is an element of people in Wales not necessarily knowing about these policy developments. Um, and I think it's, it's that thing of... <sighs> that basis of understanding devolution. I mean, I spoke to a friend the other day who thought that we still in Wales had to ask Westminster for permission every time we um, cast a piece of legislation or made some policy. And I think people in Wales, I guess, recognise that we are doing things differently and doing it well, but they probably don't understand who makes the decisions to make that happen, and that has a big ramification. How can we improve the situation? That's the, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it, really? Um, I think being clearer in terms of news on what exactly is is Welsh, I think engagement from the Assembly, which I think is, is massively improving, I think they're doing some really good stuff in terms of um, taking committees out of the Senate itself, doing... Um, but are you really going to have lots of people banging on the door to get into a committee... Uh, room which may be um, having a meeting with assembly members in Colwyn Bay as opposed to Cardiff Bay. I think you will get some people. I agree it's not it's not going to affect a mass market necessarily. Um, but I think a combination of that and better political education, um, better news provision, um, better lifelong education as well for adults, because I don't think this is just a problem with young people, um, a combination of that will go some way in addressing this. But I don't think, I, as I said, I don't think there's a silver bullet. Because it is quite extraordinary isn't it, that we do not have compulsory lessons in schools about politics, about the way in which people are governed. Um, There's no obligation at all for that to happen, and yet we do have compulsory study of religion, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, this is a real issue that our project Missing Voices last year 
really identified there was a huge lack of understanding about what the Assembly and Welsh Government did, the difference between the two, what effect they had on people's lives. Um, And it's definitely going to be our priority over the next year. So we are looking seriously at political education at the moment, um, not just in terms of curriculum reform, but I think a thriving political um, a system of political citizenship education has to rely on other things. If you look at what Norway are doing uh, on election day, they have mock elections in schools and they um, have the results of those on the TV before the exit poll comes out in the evening. And I think integrating politics in as a normal part of young people's lives is vitally important for addressing the issues. Because if it isn't done, then people are not going to get into the habit of doing it. I suppose one thing that we've lost in Wales is the fact that uh, going back decades. Um, there used to be very strong trade unions um, in the industrial parts of Wales, and related to the coal mines, to the uh, steelworks, um, and, uh, and so on. And you would have a situation where it was natural for politics to be part of people's lives, because they'd be talking about it at work, uh, in these communities, and it would uh, it would come down to the, the union meetings that they attended. Now we've got a much less focused society, haven't we, where people are not working for these huge organisations which encourage um, or induce uh, engagement about what's going on in the workplace, what's going on further afield. Um, I mean, um, uh, there used to be a big tradition of uh, working men's clubs and institutes, uh, and at the the turn of the 20th century, there'd be a lot of people who would be borrowing books from uh, from these institutions. They did, should we say, perhaps degrade over a long period of time into becoming just drinking institutions, but the, the, the starting point was that you had a working class culture that was immersed in politics. Do you think that's something that we... We lack now, and that that is something which would be, in ideal terms, great to revive, but very difficult to do. I think the way Wales works and the way society in Wales works is fundamentally changed, and I think... It's not necessarily a case of looking at the past for lessons, but I think we have to adapt and work out what works in a modern society where we're using technology, where I get my news from Twitter, frankly, in Twitter moments and um, Morning Call and The Guardian, and it's how we balance the need for better information and for people to really engage with politics with having to meet you know, the, the way people live. 2018 is a very important year from a constitutional point of view because it was in 1918 that some women were given the right to vote for the first time Uh, and yet there are many people who would argue that uh, in 2018 a hundred years after that there are still enormous barriers for women. Do you, do you think that's right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, prime example, last year, Wales's local elections, uh, 27% of councillors are female. I think that's a damning statistic. It's just over one quarter. And if you look at councils in Wales, there are two with cabinets that are exclusively white, male and middle-aged. And I think that is a terrible situation it's where people look at their councils and they see people who do not represent them in any way shape or form and I think to have a thriving democracy we need to have a representative democracy where people really feel that if they are female or if they are of ethnic origin or if they don't fit the kind of mold that we've seen um, to date that they can still thrive. Yeah it's not an easy thing to overcome is it really because 
I, uh, over the years, have spoken to people in various political parties and uh, indeed in, 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 in the Labour Party, which has done an enormous yeah. amount in terms of trying to um, accommodate women and to make sure that women have a fair chance in terms of getting selected. I mean, uh, Julie Morgan, for example, was in the uh, vanguard uh, 20 years ago in terms of um, bringing in this arrangement when the assembly was being established that Labour candidates would be selected from uh, twinned constituencies with one man and one woman. Uh, and that was regarded at the time as highly controversial, mm. and there was a big debate, I remember attending it, um, in Swansea, I think it was, uh, at the time, and there were quite a lot of people who were against it. Uh, but uh, Julie and others argued very strongly that some uh, action had to be taken, otherwise... Uh, good intentions just wouldn't get anywhere. But even after initiatives like that, when it comes, for example, to selecting candidates for local government, what I'm told from, um, I concede, uh, often male councillors, that it is actually difficult in particular areas because you've got these sometimes quite small wards uh, covering quite a small geographical area. And they say that it's actually very difficult to... Uh, to drum up um, interest uh, for for women to actually put themselves forward as potential candidates. I mean, is there something before we start before, before we consider uh, structural difficulties in terms of um, women getting selected? Mm. Is there something that is stopping a lot of women even considering getting involved? I think it's kind of a chicken and egg situation in a way. Um, women probably don't see councils as places they necessarily want to stand for because they look at them in their current state and think oh but I wouldn't fit in with that cabinet of white male 50 plus year olds um and I think that's I guess self um well it's, it's difficult in a way because to really change things I think we almost need to um create a system where women see themselves in political roles they see people like them and they're inspired by people like them and I think we're at a very difficult point now where we're trying to start to make that process happen but I do think in terms of the structural things things like um twinning have been a success um all in shortlist zipping quotas in a way have been a success um but we're still seeing difficulty. I mean, the Conservatives selected a candidate for last year's general election to fight Bridgend, and there was a massive uproar from the local party because they felt like it was a woman being parachuted into a constituency. And I know it is difficult for political parties to face controversy within their members, but I think it's just a bit of a rubbish excuse now. It's 2018. We know these problems aren't going away. Um, they are systemic, and I think to really change things, parties need to up their game. There are, um, nevertheless on the positive side, some um, inspirational uh, women who are involved in local government in Wales and, of course, at the Assembly. Um, recently, Debbie Wilcox took over, not just uh, as the leader of Newport Council about 18 months or so ago, but also as leader of the Welsh Local Government Association. And she's quite a, um, a positive figure, isn't she? She's a very bubbly character. She's very engaged um, she's got an awful lot of experience um, as having been a teacher for 30 years and she's very down to earth mm. actually um, so somebody like her 
does act as a role model for other women to come forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's almost a really um, bad expectation on women like Debbie, who are so successful, to almost bring a load of young uh, activists along with them. And I think, actually, this is a responsibility, yes, for people like Debbie, who are leading organisations. But this isn't just a women's issue. This isn't like a silent minority. Women are, I think, 51% of the population in Wales. Um, This is a problem that all local government leaders need to face, all political party leaders need to face, whether they're women or not. And yet there is um, a point which is reached where there is some resistance which is met from some quarters. Uh, And this is really, I suppose, stemming from proposals that would actually see the law changed to enforce equality. Do you think that the law should be changed to enforce gender equality in local Uh, and national uh, democratic institutions? Um, I'm tempted to give an honest answer here and say I don't know. Uh, I think there are definitely um, merits for legislating and making sure that um, making sure that measures are taken. If you look at Ireland, um, they legislated to make um, parties sacrifice some of their party funding if they didn't have a certain number of candidates that were female. And I think that's a system that's and that female candidates have shot up in the statistics. Um, so I think there are merits for doing approaches like that. I worry that if we legislate and the mechanisms to encourage women to stand and people from diverse backgrounds aren't there, then what's the point of legislating? I think it has to all come as a package um, and, and really start from the ground up. So as well as uh, these ideas about um, legislating for um, um, gender equality, uh, there's also, of course, the debate about whether the actual voting system Mm. should change, certainly so far as the Assembly is concerned, but also so far as um, local authorities um, are concerned. If you had a single transferable vote system, which is one I think that ERS is Mm. very much in favour of, it wouldn't necessarily result, would it, uh, unless there were some uh, extra uh, legal mechanism uh, put in. It wouldn't necessarily result in more women being elected because the way it would operate would be there would be multi-member constituencies and uh, voters would vote according to their own um, preference in terms of choices and they would go one, two, three or whatever. I mean, you could still have voters who would say, one, two, three men. And and that wouldn't actually help gender equality at all. So you would need, actually, if you were determined to get gender equality in terms of representation, an extra mechanism on top of that, wouldn't you? I think it's important to note that no voting system is perfect. I do, however, think that proportional representation in particular, the single transferable vote, has a lot of merits. And I think when um, countries that tend to use the single transferable vote have a higher proportion of female candidates and yes there will be issues with voters perhaps not selecting women but I think there are issues at the moment where um, women aren't being put up as candidates at all uh, particularly in local elections I think it was it was 27% again really for um, women being candidates in local elections then we got 20% of 27% of councillors being women so the more women you put up, the more likely they are to get elected. And I think that's um, that's kind of an obvious uh, 
solution there really um, but there are other systemic problems in terms of our voting system particularly at local election level we had 93 uncontested um, wards last year so it was 92 that um, just had one candidate standing for them and one had no candidate standing at all we have a low turnout um, we have problems with um councillors standing for years and years and years and no kind of change and I think a different voting system really gives a lot of options to solve some of those problems. Because if you had a single transfer of work system where you had multi-member constituencies or wards you'd have bigger wards and therefore there would be a greater opportunity to get people um, to stand yeah. uh, who lived in those wards perhaps. Yeah and it depends how you do it I mean there are different options but I know so the National Assembly last year published their expert panel um, report on um, electoral reform so that looked at votes of 16, the size of the assembly and voting systems and they did present a couple of options for different size of wards um, under an STV system but I think actually um, although it raised some concerns about losing a constituency link there are options so where AM2 are currently, for example, the AM for a certain part of a large city can then potentially be one of the AMs for the whole city. And I think actually that helps develop constituency links and community links. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. There are those who argue, aren't there, that gender isn't the only uh, manifestation of identity politics that could be uh, used in order to get um, demographic balance. Uh, I mean, one point that's been made to me by uh, quite a few people and which I can see some merit in is the fact that a lot of the members of the Assembly are middle-class people and that there is a shortage of working-class people, although, of course, Wales is predominantly a working-class country. And so that isn't a gender issue, that's a class issue. Do you think that's something that needs to be addressed as well? I think there are a massive um, array of kind of demographic indicators that need to be addressed, um, not just in the Assembly, but particularly... generally in politics Um, and I think they are kind of class background. Um, We are currently doing a project on diversity where we're looking at this issue and one of the questions we're quite keen to know is what jobs people were doing before they got elected because I think that actually tells us quite a lot about um, who our politicians and our elected representatives are. Um, So that's definitely one area we're looking at. We're also looking at ethnic ethnic, um, origin, sexual orientation um, disability. There's a huge um, I guess silent issue with people who have disabilities um, being very concerned about standing for election for a multitude of reasons. When we did the Missing Voices report, we met a woman who was standing for town council who was in a wheelchair and she was standing for town council specifically because she knew her local town council was not accessible and she wanted to see what happens when she got elected. Did she get elected? Um, I think she did. So presumably they're having to make changes as I think they're having uh, meetings elsewhere. Right, okay, okay. I suppose there are people who are resistant, aren't there, to the whole idea of quota systems because Mm. if you take on board all of these various parameters, you would end up with a very complicated system. So uh, why is it that it's just really the gender issue which is regarded as one to, um, to take action on? 
which I, is which is prominent at the moment. I think at the moment Trump. it's um, particularly prominent because of the centenary and because of the move- movements going on across the world, like the Me Too movement. Um, the issues we've seen around sexual harassment in particular has really brought this to a fore, I think, in this question. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, it's not a silent minority here. This is a majority of people in Wales not being properly represented in politics. And I think it's, it's a really good place to start. Do you think, uh, Jess, that one problem as well, uh, which stops women coming forward, is when they read stories about um, uh, women politicians who are subjected to the most appalling abuse uh, on social media, uh, criminal abuse, I mean, uh, there have been threats to kill, mm. threats to rape. What is the matter with, with people that they come up with such ideas? I, I just I think that's the, probably the biggest question of our of our time. To be honest, what what is the matter with people? But I think yeah, of course that's going to be be a barrier. I mean, there was a female candidate in North Wales for council last year who had unbelievable threats, mm. and that's not actually stopped it. I think she's been selected for a parliamentary um, candidacy again now, but it takes a very very strong woman to deal with that kind of abuse and to be honest I'm not sure I'd want to go through that. I mean it seems to me that there is the need uh, to be extremely firm in such circumstances and of course there have been people who have been prosecuted but I think it probably took quite a while for that to happen um, for uh, the police really to take Mm. this sort of thing sufficiently seriously and one of the one of the downsides about social media is that it's given um, uh, a vehicle to some very nasty people to to say things that they wouldn't normally be in a position to be able to uh, broadcast um, widely but I think it's important isn't it that when incidents like this happen uh, certainly in the most serious instances, these people are prosecuted and dealt with very severely. Absolutely. Just because someone's sitting behind a screen when they write these things doesn't make them less hurtful. And I think um, we really need to work out how to take these threats seriously, this, these instances of harassment seriously, and you know respond to them properly in a modern age. Looking at the issue about um, gender equality from another perspective... Do you think that having more women in elected office, does it necessarily lead to an improvement in policy outcomes? I think diverse politics, whether it's through um, gender or or any kind of diversity, creates better debate and it creates better representation because different issues are being brought forward. Um, I think we see a lot of problems with the Westminster system that is very very male very very white a lot a staggering amount of people went to the same school which is just not healthy in our democracy to have a thriving democracy that properly represents voters whether they're in Anismon or Pembrokeshire you need people from different upbringings to really bring different perspectives to that and I think that can create policy making doesn't necessarily mean that because somebody is a woman they're going to be a better legislator or a better minister no. because it's possible for uh, people to be in uh, positions uh, and actually not necessarily behave well in those positions if they are yeah. women. I mean, there are examples without naming anybody, and I'm not even going to say which institution I'm talking about, but there have been examples of women in high office who have behaved badly. Um, so I suppose uh, 
while it's possible, you know, and it's and it's appropriate to go along with a lot of the arguments about the need for women to be more engaged, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that that in itself isn't necessarily going to lead to an outcome where every woman who is in every uh, elected office or in every position of authority is going to be uh, behaving well or doing things well. I mean, from a political point of view, of course, as well, there's some irony in the fact that uh, the first prime minister in the UK was a conservative, Margaret Thatcher, um, who was reviled by many people for her policies, particularly in Wales. And the second woman prime minister is another right-wing politician, Theresa May. So do you think that indicates that the, perhaps the Labour Party has something to look at as well. Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because people are people and politicians are politicians and you're going to have a vast array of excellent representative politicians and not-so-great politicians, regardless of their backgrounds. And we can't get away from that. I just think that we need a bit of a better starting point. Having a more diverse assembly, having more diverse local councils is more likely to get better policy outcomes for a wider array of people in Wales. It's not a panacea. Um, You know, we might have female leaders who aren't very good. And I think that's okay because we have male leaders who aren't very good too. So why why not go for it? I think that, yes, having more politicians that represent the people that they serve is obviously a healthier thing. Having a Westminster system in particular where the majority of them are white male and went to Eton or, you know, the same school, knew each other, have that kind of class upbringing doesn't bring a healthy democracy and it doesn't bring a healthy politics. And I think, yes, Calibre will include if more women are elected and a more diverse slate of politicians. But there's also another argument to this, which is that if men are allowed to be a bit rubbish, why can't women be too? I feel that there are massive expectations on all women who are in elective, elected office to be some sort of saviour and, and lead more women to find the light. Um, and I think we just need to treat women as normal politicians and let them have um, failures and weaknesses too. Of course, we recently had the publication of the um, report uh, produced by the panel chaired by Laura mm-hmm. McAllister, which was suggesting not simply that there should be some uh, mechanism legally to ensure uh, gender equality, but also Laura's report was talking about the need to significantly increase the number of assembly members, and she's talking about um, having effectively about half as many yeah. again as we've got at the moment. Do you think that's a hard sell? I think it's a hard sell, yes, but I think it's necessary. I think we have seen the issues faced, especially in recent years, um, from not having enough capacity in the Assembly. The Assembly's fundamentally changed since it was established in 1999. We have four Wales Acts since then. We've got a raft of new powers. We can legislate. Brexit's coming down the line. And yet we've still got 60 Assembly members left to deal with this. A significant number of AMs sit on free committees. They have to read 500-page documents for each committee three times a week. They have to sit in plenary. And I think it's going to lead to a point where our Assembly isn't reaching the potential that it should be able to. If we look comparatively, um, Scotland has 127 uh, MSPs. Um, Northern Ireland's Assembly, when it is up and running, (laughs) has... uh, 90. 90, I think, 90 MLAs. It was it was 108, but it's reduced mm. since. And 
I think there is a case now for seriously looking at this, especially, you know, we're losing four MEPs after Brexit. They cost a fortune in comparison to what Assembly members do. I think it's um, 1.79 million per MEP and about 257,000 per an Assembly member. So you can get, you can cover a significant amount of increase in that Assembly by just moving some money around. And yet a lot is made about this uh, issue of the need for better scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to ask you... Um, what are the bad laws that have been made as a consequence of a lack of scrutiny? Mm. What would you respond? I don't think there are bad laws per se. I think there are laws potentially that could have been better. At the moment, there is a a piece of housing legislation that a full committee hasn't got time to look at. So there's a subcommittee of four assembly members looking at that legislation. I'm not saying it's going to be bad legislation, but having more opinions, more scrutiny on that would definitely help. Um, And I think we're at a point now where it may not have been bad to date, but it's going to get bad when extra powers, extra stress, um, extra responsibility comes down the line. But of course, just increasing the number of Assembly members isn't necessarily going to increase the calibre, is it? Because political parties um, are a law unto themselves when it comes to picking candidates. And... Uh, They have come under criticism in the past in Wales for choosing people uh, on the basis of um, friendship, Mm -hmm. somebody who's who's well-known, who's time-served, who may have been a councillor for a long time, uh, who may be uh, simply someone who's who's popular, but who won't necessarily have the skills to be able to perform this scrutiny role that, um, that is spoken of so much. What can be done to encourage political parties to up their game in terms of choosing better quality candidates. I was at an event a few years ago where a panel member said that the rule with any political institution is that around a third of your members are really good, around a third are mediocre, like pretty good, and a third are a bit rubbish. And I think that general rule definitely um, has some application. Having a larger spread of Assembly members certainly widens that pool of those that are good and excellent. Um, And I think in terms of what can be done from political parties' points of view, there are mechanisms at the moment where candidates have to go to interview and be approved, and I think that's useful. And also, I think there is a personal development responsibility for parties, making sure that um, they are selecting good candidates with a diverse... um, a diverse background and maybe giving them a bit of help along the way to train them to be more effective candidates and more effective politicians. But there's always this problem isn't there where you have a situation where a local party is very jealous of its own right to select its candidate and whenever a higher level in the party tries to come along and say, uh, "Look, you know, we've we've, and this does happen. It may not may not be said as explicitly as this, but there have been instances where there have been candidates being selected, mm-hmm. and people at a at a higher level in the party than the local party have tried to ensure that somebody that they think will be good should be selected, and this often leads to uh, to conflict." and can result in a situation where the local party, uh, if it has the power to do so, can uh, rebel against the wishes of the higher level Mm. in the party, in the party hierarchy, and say, no, you may want us to appoint this person. We would regard them as a parachute. 
and we're not going to go along with that and we'll elect our local favoured candidate anyway. So that's there's always that political element in this, isn't there? Yeah, and I think parties um, generally, I think there are a couple of parties where membership elects candidates, and I think that's a really healthy thing to do, you know, a proper hustings of multiple candidates and party members in that local constituency being given a proper option. I think that's really he- um, healthy. And where we've seen those issues, especially recently, it's where the process hasn't been so democratic. So I think parties really seriously need to look at that. So far as reform is concerned, uh, we're of course in a situation now in 2018 where there are no elections that are planned for three years. Let's hope so. (laughs) Because there has been a glut of elections in the last few years, isn't there? But um, as things stand, uh, the next planned election is the Assembly election in 2021. And I think when Laura McAllister published her uh, panel's report, the expectation that she had was that Um, any changes that are going to be made would be in place Mm. for uh, that election in 2021. Although since I've been picking up concerns that uh, maybe the Labour Party, which is the most important party, uh, may be perhaps kicking it into the long grass. I think there are elements of the recommendations that are easier to sell to political parties. For example, we know that votes of 16 and 17 was in most of the party manifestos and is generally quite supported. The size of the Assembly is a difficult one, and I think there are serious concerns, if I'm honest, within the Labour Party about their ability to sell it to their constituents. But I don't think that's really an excuse. And I hope that the Labour Party will get behind the recommendations because I don't think privately there are very many AMs who disagree with the recommendations. And I think political capital is a really important thing here and making this a priority and sucking it up a little bit, to be honest with you. Uh, In terms of local government, Mm. the proposal is that um, uh, each local authority would be able to choose... (laughs) its own method of election. Is that a good idea? Um, Scotland uh, has a a uniform uh, selection uh, of um, councillors or election of councillors via STV. If we have this patchwork quilt approach, isn't that just going to make things more complicated and um, less easy for voters to understand? I mean, the ideal is obviously to have a proportional representation system in place for all councils and local elections in Wales Um, but the model that has been suggested by the Welsh Government isn't that rare they use it in New Zealand it's permissive PR system and I think if we're talking about an option between sticking with first past the post that we know has massive systemic problems and moving a few councils to STV in the hope that others might follow then absolutely let's go down that path I think it is probably the best idea for the situation and the context that we're currently in. How optimistic are you that the ideas that you are campaigning for are actually going to come to fruition? I think we are in the most exciting period we've ever been in in the ERS. April this year we will get powers over elections and it really gives us the opportunity to do things differently in Wales and I think um, if I'm honest that this is a really exciting time. The Welsh Government in particular have been looking really progressively at some of these issues. Their local government reform that's planned at the moment is genuinely world-leading in some instances. And the goal throughout, um, I think, has been making our democracy healthier, which is the right goal. And I think 
give us a few years, give us a couple of elections, and we will have a much healthier democracy and a much better political system than we currently have. I very often travel on the number 17, number 18 bus in Cardiff, <laughs> and uh, one cannot uh, help uh, tune in sometimes uh, to other people's conversations. I have to say that I rarely hear people talking about politics. Do you think that the kind of um, initiatives that mm. the Assembly and others are involved in now will lead to a situation where I'll be travelling on the number 17 and 18 bus uh, maybe in a few years' time and overhearing these passionate political discussions? We did, um, for Missing Voices Project, we did a number of focus groups. We did 20 focus groups across Wales, um, spanning, I think, 20 out of the 40 constituencies. And we'd always start with, what do you think about politics? And um, one focus group that I can distinctly remember, one of the women there was like, oh, politics, I don't care about politics. And then we started having a conversation with her, and we were like, what do you think about you know, your local community? And she said, do you know what, I'm so fed up with bins, I've had to write to my local councillor about bins. And we were like, that's politics. And she's like, no, 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 that's bins. And I think we've got a massive challenge in Wales to link up the things that matter to people every day, things that affect their lives, and what people see goes on in Westminster in the Senate. And I think that's, that's the challenge you've got to face. And I think efforts um, from the Assembly at the moment to bring deliberative democracy where people are more involved in decision making to the fore are definitely definitely trying to tackle that issue and I think we will get there. I'm really, really optimistic. Jess Blair, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.